Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there. Now you can log on if you're available on the Internet by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yes, we have a great chat room. We have some great conversation. It's um, very educational. It can be very fun and lighthearted, too, but it always adds a whole new depth to the radio interview. So do come join us. That's provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In today's spotlight, I would like to draw your attention to the age of disappearing privacy. I recently addressed the new emojis Facebook is using to measure emotional reactions, all as an admitted expansion of their data mining efforts. If you missed this show, check out my blog at eldentaylor.com for details. Today, I would like to discuss another aspect of what is referred to commonly as the arrival of the Orwellian age, and that is the eyes that are on you everywhere. We marvel at technology today, but it is often akin to the proverbial surgeon's scalpel, in that there resides within it the potential for great good and unimaginable harm. Take, for example, facial recognition software. Most of us might enjoy how our smartphones can sort through our photographs and organize them by people. But did you know this same technology could be used to find you? Imagine this scenario. Someone takes a picture of you. Maybe you're shopping, driving, or in a bar. Maybe you just accidentally cut someone off in traffic, and they're raging mad about it. Or you're an attractive woman going about your own business, or just sitting in your car at a stoplight. And our imaginary perpetrator snaps your picture. Later, he accesses his recognizer software, software created by the Swedish firm, the Astonishing Tribe. Using this software, he is able to search the Internet for you, and in seconds he pulls up your Facebook page or any and all other social networking sites, and now he has discovered your name, where you live, your likes, and so forth. The stalker can learn much more about you by reading your posts and looking at your friends and family. And if you have privacy settings to protect you, that doesn't mean that all of your other contacts are using them as well. Everywhere your picture might be, the software has recognized you And the information is now his. How do you feel about that? Now, just so you know, this software actually exists. So there's nothing imaginary about the ability to do just exactly what I have described in this scenario. There is another publicly available software program called PhotoFinder that does the same thing and even more. Indeed, using facial recognition software to scan for criminals at the 2001 Super Bowl in Tampa, Florida, led authorities to netting 19 people. There is a television series called Person of Interest. In this popular series, an intelligent computer, actually two competing computers, track everyone. This is not at all far-fetched. There are already software installations capable of locating you and then tracking you, at least within the camera networks. Britain has one such system. There are cases where cameras have been installed in school restrooms, and even where students have unknowingly taken laptops home that provided school personnel with the ability to monitor their activities remotely. So the day of personal privacy may be coming quickly to a close, but only if we enable it. Remember 
that the next time you're ready to volunteer your personal information to anyone. Knowledge is power. That's why I wrote Gotcha, the subordination of free will. Use your power wisely. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? You know, I find the whole interesting, the whole topic really interesting. I mean, how many detective shows have we seen where they caught the bad guy because of this type of technology? So, you know, when it's used correctly, it can be really good, but you just get comfortable with it. You don't stop and think about how the other side can use it all as well or what it can be used for. So, yeah, then it gets it gets very, very scary. I mean, having someone follow you, stalk you. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a double-edged sword. And we don't have adequate privacy laws to protect us as of yet for this kind of thing. So, okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, and we discussed the Aztec incident. Paul wrote, great show with the Ramseys. I like how you got the dis and misinformation out of the way early, and I found how Scott dealt with that both informative and credible. Richard wrote, aren't these folks great? Nice to have someone who has so thoroughly done their work. I wonder if they have conjecture beyond just the research of the facts. Do they possess any information about or educated conjecture about the objectives of flying alien entities? That's an excellent question, Richard. Mark wrote, I think it's more likely that this is a cover-up for some special military program for a new type of plane. Talbot wrote, I love the variety of information you take on in your show. No wonder it is called Provocative Enlightenment. I like that one. That's a good one, huh? Moving on, AC wrote this about uh, my new book, Gotcha. Let's be clear. There are matters of information, disinformation, and obfuscation. There are plenty of places to go for outright lies and deception, but rarely does one find all in one location someone as qualified as Eldon laying it out for your inspection. Each of his previous volumes and all the years of his own investigative excellence have led to this masterpiece. And the nice thing is he doesn't have some huge axe to grind. It comes across clearly that he sees value in the industries and processes he looks at. But he, as do many right-thinking individuals, strongly objects to the misuses of technology on largely unsuspecting individuals, especially when it's done for no better reason than profit and control. A real wake-up call to those who value being allowed to make use of real information, really draw conclusions from real evidence, and exercise the freedoms listed as the ideals of this country's true form of government. Thank you so much. Read this book and tell others to do so. It points to an accountability which is surely slipping away but could be brought back if enough knew how to recognize the shenanigans being put in place. Well, I have to tell you, you know, that's a great uh, that's a great letter, great, great book review. We need this fellow to do some copywriting for us. What do you think, Rev? <laughs> yeah, I think so. All right, and finally, Sandy wrote this about her new Intertalk program. Hey there, Eldon. Just have to let you know that I purchased the Freedom from Bruxism Intertalk program. I'm shocked and amazed. I no longer have to wear a bike guard at night. I no longer clench my teeth, and it's actually caused me to have much more stress relief overall. Since my jaw is not chronically clenched anymore, I can now forego the need to go to a TMJ specialist since the problem is now fixed. After years of clenching and grinding my teeth, I'm free. Thank you. Well, thank you for sharing, Sandy. I think you wanted to add something to this one, didn't you, Ravinder? Yeah, no, I, I will definitely add my thanks to the pro for the program, too. I mean, I used it. You created it for me because I was having a problem. I actually wasn't even aware I was clenching my teeth. I was just getting up in the morning with a splitting headache, and that went on for months and months and months before I figured out what was causing it and then yeah playing the program is so much more comfortable than wearing a bike guard infinitely more so all right so sandy you owe ravinder uh thanks <laughs> because she prompted the creation of this one all right that's all the time we're going to take for letters today but i do invite you to opine by sending your comments to eldon that's e-l-d-o-n at eldentaylor.com or by joining me on facebook and i want to thank all of you for your letters and comments we truly do appreciate your feedback and support 
Now to this week's show, Habits of a Happy Brain. Think about that for a moment. What is a happy brain? How do you know when our brain is happy? You wake up in the morning. I tell listeners this all the time. Wake up in the morning, you know, do two things. It'll set a new course for your day. Smile, great big smile, because the brain doesn't know that you're faking that smile, and it'll just release some endorphins, and those are the body's natural opiates, and it just starts your day feeling a little better. And say thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't care who you're saying thank you to, but that changes your focus to gratitude. And this little exercise really does change your life. But are we changing the brain, or is the brain changing us? I mean, if I'm happy, does that mean my brain is also happy? Or could it be that I might think I'm happy, but my brain's really unhappy? Take, for instance, addiction. If I'm addicted to some substance that affects my brain, like alcohol, drugs, or cigarettes, is my brain happy when I satisfy my addiction? What about smoking? When you inhale that cigarette and think it feels so good, it relaxes you, it tastes good, and all those other lies smokers tell themselves... Does the brain get that same sense of satisfaction and become happy? Enter today's guest, Dr. Loretto Loretta Graziano Bruning. Graziano, wasn't there? There was a great boxer by the name of Graziano. Dr. Loretta Graziano Bruning is the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute and author of Habits of a Happy Brain. Retrain your brain to boost your serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphin levels. Dr. Bruning was not convinced by the theories of human motivation she was teaching. As professor of management at California State University, she kept researching until she uncovered the brain chemistry we share with animals. Then everything made sense, and she began creating resources to help people manage their neurochemistry in new ways. With books, videos, podcasts, blogs, slideshows, and infographics, she has helped thousands of people, quote, make peace with the animal inside, close quote. Now, the animal inside, what could that mean? Well, let's get her in here and find out. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Loretta Graziano Bruning. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. Now, are you related to a boxer whose name was Graziano? No, but when I was growing up, I heard that question all the time, and I had no idea who he was. Well, he was a heavyweight fighter. That I remember. I was trying to think of his first name. Maybe I'll check it during the break. Was it Rocky? That's it. Rocky Graziano. There you go. But you're not related. No, but I think it's a common name, and I think it means gratitude in a way, because Grazia is thank you, and Graziano is thanking. Wow. Well, yeah, how cool. perfect that is. Smile and say Graziano instead of thank you. I'll remember that one. Okay. Let's begin with what is it you mean by making peace with the animal side? Please unpack this for us. The animal inside. So um, our brain is inherited from earlier animals, and of course we've added on a large cortex. So the cortex is really just a storage system, a lot of extra neurons that can store new information. But the cortex alone can't steer you through life. What steers you is this core part of the brain called the limbic system that we've inherited from animals, and it steers us with neurochemicals. So a positive, good-feeling neurochemical is released when you see an opportunity to do something good for your survival and a threatened yucky cortisol feeling is released when you see something that threatens your survival but the brain defines survival in a quirky way and that's why life is frustrating interesting and i have to ask you this one because i know you write about it i caught it in your book and i thought boy i've been waiting to talk to someone who is going to take this one on there's a very popular idea out there about you know the altruism of animals how wonderful animals are if we could just behave more like animals well you know as a former rancher racehorse tra- i have seen some pretty evil things from animals so I'm going to ask you, are animals altruistic, as some like to claim? 
Oh, thank you so much for asking this. This is this is my frustration too. And I always quote people like you who have direct life experience with animals. So this is a new trendy thought bandwagon coming from academia that animals are empathetic. But anyone who spent time around animals knows that they fight over food and they will even steal food from juveniles even when they're not hungry. Uh, so this is not the view of animals that people want to hear. And if one wants to construct proof and quotes that animals are altruistic, one can construct experiments and report the results that conform. But the bottom line, I would say, is that animals are focused on survival. And when cooperation promotes survival, then they will cooperate. And they do mirror the experience of others, but it's not in a, in a self-facing way. It's to, um, uh, I see you get a reward, and I learn from your behavior. I see you get harm, and I learn from your behavior. So we do have these social bonds, but it doesn't necessarily fit the romantic view of the world. And yeah, I it, would even say the Disney view of the world, because Disney is actually more honest about this. <laughs> so, in a sense, we, in the animal world, are not going to find anything we don't find in the human world uh, by way of the worst possible behavior. Would you say that we can find the best possible behavior in the animal world that we find in the human world? So, here's the thing. When you talk about behavior, it's good to not presume that it's hardwired. Here's the way it works. We're born with lots of neurons, but they're not connected to each other. The bigger a brain, the less connected it is at birth. Isn't that mind-boggling? So the bigger the brain, the longer the childhood, because it takes so long to connect up those neurons. So a reptile leaves home the instant it cracks open out of its shell, and if it doesn't run away fast enough, a parent eats it. And they're born hardwired with all the survival skills they'll ever need. But a mammal learns how to act from its early experience. So our brain is designed to wire itself up from early experience. So the behaviors that puzzle us come from childhood experience. Um, and I have to add teen experience because the brain rewires itself during the teen years. Well, fires together, wires together. So let me ask you this, uh, doctor. Um, the data shows clearly that there's a, a very strong correlation, very positive correlation, I should say, between um, the inheritance of criminality. And I won't say it's a gene thing or an environmental thing. There just seems to be this high correlation. Do you believe it has to do with this early wiring experience? If we're an abusive family, we wire that in ways that become adaptive in our later life? Or what's your take on so, that? So here's the confusing thing. And um <laughs> I, I, this is an issue that's dear to my heart because my family's from Sicily, with there's a, a long tradition of crime and violence there, and I have done a lot of research on it, and of course I'm thrilled that my family was able to escape that trap, but I wonder how. Now, I think about, you know the scene in Goodfellas where um, the Joe Pesci, um, he brings the guys home to mom to have a snack before they go out and do a murder. So this is a long way to say your brain learns from re rewards and pain. So criminality, it doesn't just have to be from abuse. It could be that when I was young, I was rewarded. For example, I steal a cookie from my brother, and I get to keep the cookie. And the cookie feels good to my brain, and your brain is always learning from rewards. And it says, oh, so that's the way to get a cookie. Uh, just as an example, or like I hit someone on the playground and I suddenly get a lot of support and attention from people. So right. when I was young, you know, I used to think it was just abuse. But in fact, the brain learns again from rewards and pain. So maybe that child that finds satisfaction in... Uh... Um, what, killing a rodent because uh, his mother's afraid of it, then finds that 
killing animals, and then that maybe advances. It's all a matter of how we're wiring the brain, in your view. Yes, and here's another um, complicated part of it. They discovered something called mirror neurons. So Mm -hmm. we mirror others. So, for example, when I'm growing up and I have frustrations like anybody else, and I learn from the way the people around me deal with their frustrations. So if somebody deals with their frustrations by kicking a wall, then cognitively I may say to myself, I'm never going to do that. But the circuits are activated, and if they're activated over and over, then in a moment of weakness, people often say, you know, I don't know even how I did it, but I just kicked a wall. They do precisely what they said they wouldn't. You're right. So, now, let me ask you this then, and I think this is an important part before we get into the actual chemistry and how we retrain understanding this. In the animal kingdom, if... Uh, if you are the dominant male, you have greater control of your environment. If you're uh, a, a dominant female, your uh, your children, your children, well, your your get are are likely to survive. They have a higher survivability rate. Okay, your sib. So, uh, how important is that? genetic characteristics that any, does that flow down and is it does it dominate the human condition as well oh there's a bunch of different questions in what you asked so uh first um i don't go along with this idea of like certain person is an alpha like you're not born to be an alpha every brain is born to assert itself when it's safe. So our brain is constantly learning, okay, asserting feels good, but getting bad feedback feels bad. So we're constantly learning when is it safe to assert. And uh, the dog whisperer is a really good um, insight into that. Like once the alpha disappears, then someone else immediately takes over. Of course, I shouldn't say someone. (laughs) Now, the interesting thing, as you mentioned, the more dominant individual, they make more surviving copies of their genes. But I am not saying that they're happier, and they don't even necessarily live longer. You know, like live hard and die young is sort of the thing. And today right. we no longer take that as the standard of happiness of, like, how many babies you have. But that's the brain we've inherited just because they make more babies. You know what I'm saying? I, I do. I do understand that. Uh, but my question was more to the... The direct descendancy rate. If this is how the animal brain works, has the human evolved, in your opinion, in the same way to where the feedback loop by way of neurochemicals is reinforced as it is in animals who, you know, seek the same level of dominance or seek the same level of or kind of happiness? And, and I'm thinking of happiness here strictly in terms of neurochemical reward. Yes, absolutely. That's how the brain works. You know, there's this misconception in the medical model that happiness is just like that, that our happy chemicals just flow all the time unless you have a disease. But that's not at all how they're designed to work. They're designed to be released to motivate specific survival behaviors. So they reward you when you take a step. So serotonin rewards you when you assert yourself. And it's not meant to just flow for no reason. Okay, now I have a dear friend, I have to, I have to ask this one before we go to break, who um, has happiness clubs around the world, and he basically is a student of stoicism. He believes that stoicism is how you remain happy. In other words, getting unhappy displaces happiness in his view, and that's what happiness is, avoiding unhappy. Uh, feeling unhappy. What's your view on that? Um, I think it's very wise, actually. I know the word stoicism, of course, has a bad impression. But here's the thing. We are naturally designed to be frustrated because, I'll, I'll give you two examples. One, of course, in the state of nature, there are always predators. So predator alertness is a constant thing. The other is that In the state of nature, you constantly have to look for food. And if you watch nature videos, which I love to, you know, you find food, and then a few hours later, it's digested, and you got to look for food again. So we're evolved to, like, constantly seek. And if we 
if we would have gotten too, you know, complacent, we would have starved to death. So we really are sort of anxiety machines. And it's a real skill to say no to that anxiety. Interesting. We're speaking with Dr. Loretta Graziano Bruning about her research and book, Habits of a Happy Brain. To learn more about our guest and her work, visit her website at innermammalinstitute.org. That's one word, innermammalinstitute.org. Okay, we have a video for you of today's guest uh, discussing when willpower doesn't work. So join Ravinder in the chat room, and if you're listening on the dial, remember you can check the chat room out when you're next in front of your computer by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be back in just a brief minute. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Loretta Graziano Bruning about her research and book, Habits of a Happy Brain. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music psychology is a new field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. As such, there can be some true self-disclosure in the music we choose. All right, we just played some of Call Me Maybe by Carly Rae Jepsen, so please tell us, Doc, why is this music important to you, and how does it instruct us about who you are? (laughs) Well, first I should say the downside, I absolutely am not advocating the content of the words. (laughs) It's just that I I find it very uplifting, the, the music. 
So I thought it would be nice time for something uplifting since it's such a heavy topic. But but I'm not advocating casual sex. <laughs> I just say that when I listen to the words. So you're not saying, hey, call me, baby, huh? Yeah. I just gave you my number, you know. How come you have Okay. Well, you know, I, I'm going to let you slide on that one, but I might ask you other questions in a different environment, different setting. So let me ask you this instead. What prompted you to investigate this matter in the way you have? Um, well, I was a college professor, and I had my theories about life that I learned from my professors and from my early experience, and life was not working the way I thought it would. Um, To be very simple, you know, we have this idea, like, everybody's mean, and if I would only be nice, and they would only be nice, and everything would be nice. And it just doesn't work that way. And the most striking example was um, my kids. I thought, you know, if I would just be nice to them and give them what I've always, what I was always wanting, then they would, everything would work out and they would be motivated, etc. But I think my generation of parents, hopefully some people have learned that doesn't always work. And my students. Um, does it ever work? I'm sorry, but does it ever work? Yeah, I know. I, I, I don't. I don't mean to interrupt. Please go on. I don't know. I don't know if any generation has tried it as much as ours, because when I was a kid, you know, hitting your children was accepted, and so I, I credit you know our times we've made big strides in avoiding certain negative practices, but that doesn't mean that just nice is all kids need. So that's when I had to, I kept reading and reading and reading and learning and learning. And I kept reading references to these brain chemicals. And nobody had connected the dots. And it was so obvious how it all fit together that these are rewards for behaviors that a mammal wires in, behaviors that are survival relevant in the state of nature. All right, let's talk about specifics then, because, I mean, this is, your book is a marvelous book, and I'm going to suggest it to everybody out there listening. Um, But an an hour doesn't even give us the slightest opportunity to get through uh, the meat of the material. So we'll try and do some highlights. Let's talk, if we can, very specifically about the neurochemicals, what they do, how we wire them, how we, you know, how we can change our brain to find this state of happiness. So where do you want to start? You want to start with dopamine? Yeah, okay. All right, let's start with that. What is dopamine? What triggers it uh, in nature? And how do we wire it through voluntary behavior? So dopamine turns on when you expect to get a reward. So the most famous modern example is I see a finish line. I see the finish line in a marathon. So whenever you've put a lot of effort into something and you see the reward, you get a whoosh of dopamine and it feels great. But really, it's not just the moment you cross the finish line, but all those months that you spent practicing, developing yourself, that was all fueled by dopamine a little at a time rather than a big surge because you expected a reward. So that raises the question, well, so what, when do we expect rewards? And each of us has wired in our own individual expectations based on our own past experience. So, for example, one person may think, you know, if I have the right shade of nail polish, then people will like me. And my personal expectation is if I wear nail polish, my mother will slap me. So just that's just a dramatic example of it just very much depends on your visceral experience. It's not your intellectualized experience. Whatever triggered your dopamine in the past connected neurons that said, this is what you need. This is the way to get a reward. And in my book, I explain In the animal world, it's easy to see how an animal learns to find food because when you take a bite of something, your brain says, oh, wow, this is good, and it stores everything that's going on in that moment, and that's how a young mammal learns the 
This is how you meet your needs. You know, when I read your book, I had a... I had a bit of an epiphany that I'll admit to here. Now, your book says essentially that we're going to do all this wiring when we're very young. But I can remember um, when you're as a under eight, and again during puberty because of myelin, which is the substance that coats your neurons that turns them into superhighways. Right. So let's take puberty. I'm a boy, a teenager, and I've got a hot rod car, and it gets a lot of attention, and I feel super good. Now, I'm, I'm well, very mature, and I have a collector car, and it's a hot rod Impala Super Sport that's 47 years old, and when I get in it, I feel like a teenager again. That's uh-huh. dopamine, right? That's a fabulous example. I'm going to remember that. Okay. I often use the example of um, people who reconnect with a high school love. Um, in their later life. But yeah, and that's when we talk about how, how you can rewire yourself to feel good. The, the shortcut is to graft onto any circuits from your past. Now, obviously, I'm not saying you should go and cruise the avenue in your Impala, but, you know, anything that makes you feel good. A lot of people, you know, play a musical instrument or that, you know, that they return to that they enjoyed when they were young. Yeah. Well, the music um, does that too. If you if you add music from a given era, and that's what music yeah. psychology is largely showing us. In fact, there are many instances now where we've been able to awaken someone, uh, a dementia patient who, for all intent and purposes, is not consciously present through u- the use of music. And I'm sure you know about that. So, yeah, yeah, but again, that's that dopamine levels increasing, right? Um. But also the idea, of, and it, it works the same with the other chemicals. It's just your actual experience is what built your circuits. It's not your intellectual idea of what you think you should do. Right, right, right. Okay, so everybody out there, if you want to turn on the dopamine, you've got a couple of clues. Let's go to serotonin. Now that you know, we all want to kick up our serotonin because you know that helps us with memory and intelligence and da 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 da. You tell us about serotonin and how do we activate it? Well, so this is very complicated and and it's uncomfortable. It's not what people want to hear. So, so they got to hear the whole story. Um, in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, there was research that showed that monkeys who sort of one up it's hard for me to say even see um if you one up the guy next to you when the others when the other guy next to you puts himself down puts himself in the lower position and you in the upper position that stimulated the monkey's serotonin now for years and years it's been known that animals have strict social hierarchies and every bit of energy that they have left over after meeting their needs, they put into raising their position in the social hierarchy. Now, this is shocking to think, oh my God, animals do that, but they do, and it works in the sense that it does promote the survival of their genes, which is why anyone does anything. I mean, why the brain learns anything. So, the other fascinating thing is that most of our serotonin is in our stomach, our, our digestive system, rather than our brain. So in the state of nature, food and digestion and being in the one-up position go together. So your brain is always comparing you to others and saying, I see a banana. If I go for it, if you're bigger than me, you'll bite me. But if I'm bigger than you, then it's safe to go for the banana. So when I compare myself to you and I see that I'm the bigger one, then a spurt of serotonin is released. And it's sort of like I'm the man. You know, I'm I'm in the one-up position. And I know this sounds crude, but it's so easy to see that this is a pervasive theme in life. And we can give ourselves credit for struggling so hard to um, keep us in control and to express it in healthy ways rather than unhealthy ways because it's, it's our survival energy. It's, it's the way our brain evolved to work. So let me ask you this. 
if there's a connection, since serotonin is concentrated in the stomach and there is a connection reward center, as you just used with, say, the banana, is there a relationship between overeating and serotonin? Um, in my opinion, a lot of, that's very learned. Um, here's an amazing example. In the animal world, animals never give their babies solid food. If the little critter wants to eat something, they got to get it themselves. So they're nourished by mother's milk, but anything else they got to get themselves. So right. except um, occasionally, I, I mean, in the um, carnivore, like lions are, are the only exception because it takes years to learn to hunt. Now, so the brain is designed to constantly look for food and to worry about food and to look for ways to get food. And we all then, that's the primal level, and then we all adapt that based on our individual experience. I'll give you an example. A very common adaptation is to say, oh, well, this doesn't count because, you know, it's, oh, I'm just going to binge today because of blah, 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 you know. So whatever is your learned ways of managing, justifying that urge. Um, uh, so, but... Uh, I don't know. We, I mean, we're all in the same boat. It doesn't really help to say, well, I'm overeating because of serotonin. And, in fact, the two systems are separate. Like, it doesn't go from your stomach. I was just using that as a as an origin right. of... Um, but what right. I think but is it, the most... Yeah. Oh, what I, I didn't mean to cut you off. But... Sorry. <laughs> uh, the most, most, most important thing, if I think of myself as a victim, you know, people who think, oh, everybody's stepping on me and one-upping me, you're going to have low serotonin. And I think it also um, can go with bad digestion, although it can express itself in many other ways. Okay, I guess what I meant to ask is not that it's a causal factor of overeating. I didn't mean to associate it there. But since feeding is one of our four basic drives, and since in the animal world... Um, you know, it is probably the first most important drive above even fornication because survival depends on it. And it in and of itself is a reward if we're that wired or wired that way. And since people so often use food to assuage anxiety, are we unconsciously increasing our serotonin? Are we unconsciously replacing our one-upmanship, if you will, by intaking oh, feed, which is what the animal world would be using to demonstrate their one-upmanship. Oh, good question. Good question. Um, um, so, first, you said um, like the impulse to eat to relieve anxiety. So, let's talk about that. So, once you have the anxiety, that's caused by a brain chemical called cortisol, and right. people have probably heard that in the state of nature, cortisol tells you that you're in an, in an immediate emergency, and it's sort of like it drowns out everything else because our ancestors would have died if they just ignored this signal and went on munching grass. So that's why it feels so overwhelming, even in marginal, you know, even in minor situations. Right. Now, if I respond to that anxiety by eating, then that distracts me. Now, if a lion were really chasing me, then distracting myself wouldn't work. But if I've invented a lion by activating them in my own neurons, then if I focus on a cookie rather than the lion, then it actually gets rid of the lion. So from my mammal brain's point of view, it actually saved my life. (laughs) Now, many people don't go for cookies. They go for something else. So in that moment of anxiety, whatever it is that you go for, that saved your life from your mammal brain's point of view because it, it stopped the activity of the threat that you were perceiving. Okay. Let's let's move on now because we just don't have enough time to, to get it deep. And, and again, I'm going to recommend everybody out there, you, get the book, Habits of a Happy Brain, even if you have to go to the library. But read this book. It, it, it really is a great book, and it really is packed with information that can improve your life. So let's go to oxytocin. What is oxytocin in the animal world and relate it back to Homo sapiens sapien, if you will, please, Professor? Sure. So 
Um, oxytocin, um, it has more recently gotten attention, and now it sort of has a cult following almost. It's often called the cuddle hormone or the bonding <laughs> hormone or the love chemical, and it makes a mammal feel good in the company of others. Now, we mammals have a risky lifestyle because reptiles can make thousands of babies and they may lose most of them, but their genes still survive. But mammals can only make a few babies because it's so hard to gestate a baby mammal. So if I only have a few babies in my lifetime, I have to really protect every single one or my genes will be wiped out. And oxytocin is what motivates me to bond with others um, so that I survive, my genes survive. So bonding between mother and child is the oxytocin at birth. But over time, every mammal transfers its sense of oxytocin, trust, bonding, safety. It transfers it from its mother to its herd. So if you think about it, like if a baby mammal walks away from its mother, it's immediately going to get eaten. But if it waits until it understands intellectually, you know, the threat of having a lion's teeth in your hide, then it's going to die. So oxytocin makes you feel good when you're in the company of others that you trust, and you could call it safety in numbers. And mammals learn to seek it. And a fascinating example is um, elephants are able to, um, you know, fight back against a lion. It's no threat at all. But a baby lion, a baby elephant can be taken by a lion. And a mama elephant takes 22 months to gestate a baby elephant. And she has to keep that herd together to stand around the elephant when a lion comes. So oxytocin causes the herd to stick together in the face of a common threat like a lion. And that's what people are always doing. They're always pointing to common threats because it helps them feel good about their herd. Okay, now this may be a little off the reservation, but I have to ask it. Um, eight years ago, thereabouts, we saw huge crowds gather around Barack Obama, and some people actually even faded, fainted. Uh, it was it was almost it was like uh, the Beatles when they first came to America, and today we see crowds around uh, Trump, and uh, and and they're again they're just they're. They are so immersed. They're just, it's like there's some contagious something there and they're in this fervor. Is this an expression of group oxytocin? Oh, that's fascinating. Um, It's so funny because I have an article on my blog called Why We Love to Hate Politicians. So, yes, there's people who love politicians and people who hate politicians. Amen. You know, the strong emotion goes both ways because we want to be taken care of. We want a leader. So um, oxytocin would be the group aspect of it. Like when I like this politician or when I hate this politician, it makes me a member of the group. But that's separate from um, the serotonin thing. Um, So I can get a one-up position by feeling like I'm important and this politician is going to make me important, and when I'm a follower of this politician, we're all going to be more important than we are now, because your brain is always keeping score of your social position, even though you hate it when other people do that. So I'm getting a double dose. I'm getting serotonin and oxytocin at the same time. That makes me happy, so I've got to have dopamine levels increased. Tell me about endorphins. Endorphin is, it comes from endogenous morphine. So it's chemically almost exactly the same as morphine, heroin, um, oxycodone. And the bottom line is it is not meant to flow all the time. It is released when you're in physical pain. I don't know if you've ever been like you're hurt and someone says, are you okay? And you say, yeah, I'm fine. And then 20 minutes later you say, oh my God, I'm really hurt. Because oxytocin flows for 20 minutes after you're hurt that in a state of nature, it gives you a small window of opportunity to escape from harm before you feel the pain. So whether it's that zebra escaping from the lion who's already torn open its flesh or a caveman who broke his leg and has to sort of get back to the path to call his friends. So we have that 
brief masking of pain. And we are not meant to be high on this all the time because it obviously interferes with your other skills. Right. The book is Habits of a Happy Brain. And again, you know, we just don't simply have the time. But uh, what Dr. Bruning has done is basically not just go through the, the neurochemicals as we're talking about them now, but she has given you instructions in this book, easy ways that you can manage the neurochemicals and improve your life. I, I, I think it's a great book. Uh, Dr. Bruning, in 30 seconds or so, please tell our audience how they can learn more about you, find your blog, get your book. Thanks. Uh, my website, innermammalinstitute.org. And there's connections to all of my books. I have a number of them. There's lots of free stuff. Some people love to read. Some people hate to read. So I have this information in every possible form, and including in Spanish now. Um, and a translation is underway in a number of languages. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's fascinating. I mean, I, I'm so glad I learned it myself. More than fascinating. It's You can spend hours on her website. Do go there, do visit it, and do read the book. Thank you for your work, Dr. Bruning, and for your willingness to share it with us. I could spend at least another hour just chatting with you about things like the politics of neurochemicals and all the other fun <laughs> things. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.